listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. Hello, everybody. It's my great pleasure to be talking to Zoe Cohen today. Zoe is a speaker, trainer, spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, part of the Money Rebellion. She's been arrested four times and her day job is a coach and a coach supervisor. So welcome, Zoe. Hi, Jill. Thanks for this conversation. So you very kindly sent me some things to read. I've, I've done my homework and let's begin there. Let's begin with some of the facts around this. One thing that I read was that uh, humans, our impact is undeniable and pervasive. And very definitely this whole report is talking about the legacy that we leave for our children and our children's children, which I think is why many people have got more involved recently. So what stood out for you from this latest report? Uh, thanks, Jill. I think you're referring to the report, the link that I sent you as a suggested kind of pre-reading ahead of this conversation. That report is a report called The Final Warning Bell, and it's by a group called the Climate Crisis Advisory Group. Now, that advisory group has been set up by Sir David King, who's the former chief scientific advisor to the UK government. And he has pulled together a global world-leading group of scientists from every continent so that they can um, review the latest science and share it in an accessible way, direct with the public rather than it being filtered through media or politicians or otherwise. So this they only formed in the last few months and this report is their third report and it's kind of building on or, or, or distilling some of the messages from the IPCC report that came out just over two weeks ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the uh, world's leading scientists that pull together all the peer-reviewed studies every few years. So they pull together 14,000 peer-reviewed studies, that's the gold standard science, and then it gets reviewed and signed off line by line by every government on earth. And that process takes seven years. And they, so they do it every few years and it takes years to do, which means that unfortunately it's always behind the curve because it takes so long and peer-reviewed science takes a fair bit of time. So CCAG, Climate Crisis Advisory Group, is uh, here to help digest that for the public and be transparent and also to look at the latest science because the IPCC is always a year or two behind the curve because of the process it takes. And they're also a little bit conservative about what they report because it's the consensus that every government will agree to line by line in the 4,000 page report that they write. So what CCAG do is produce a kind of 10 page summary uh, or 10 page reports which are um, clearer, um, they boil stuff down, they say it how it is, and yes, it's, it's absolutely scientifically kind of based. So with all of that um, intro, just to give people a background, and I'm happy to provide the link if that's helpful so that this audience can, can have a look at the report. It's uh, very clearly, well, I mean, the, 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 the sort of hints in the title, isn't it? The final warning bell. Um, the UN themselves, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres talked about um, 
code red for humanity. And it's almost like these these global lead, uh, people at the UN are running out of expressions to say you know, quite how serious this is. So back in 2018, when the IPCC published their 1.5 degrees report, their special report on how urgent it was to stay below 1.5 degrees, Antonio Guterres at the time said, that's an existential threat. Humanity faces an existential threat. That didn't get reported in the mainstream media. The BBC didn't tell us that we were facing an existential threat. They hid it. Um, it as people watching this might be aware that the Paris Agreement, which was signed by, again, almost all governments on Earth back in um, 2015, six years ago now, uh, committed governments to stay well below two degrees global heating and ideally to 1.5 degrees. Was this the IPCC report just come out and this latest um, report from Sir David King and co is very, very clear that 1.5 degrees is now locked in. It's inevitable. We can't do anything about it. We will hit 1.5 degrees um, probably by 2030, definitely by 2040, probably quite sooner than 2030 even. Um, and what I would say most people don't understand yet is the ex exponential nature of the worsening of the impact of emissions. So every tiny fraction of a degree is exponentially worse than the previous tiny fraction. So we're at 1.2-ish degrees of global average heating now. Doesn't sound much if you turn your heating up by 1.2 degrees or you go out on a day, it's a bit sunny, a bit warmer, you probably wouldn't notice. But we're talking about global average heating. So that global average hides enormous variations. It hides an average heating of three to four times that at the poles in the Arctic, for example. And it, hi it hides all these huge extremes like the Canadian extreme of what is it, 46 degrees or whatever, and we or maybe more. Um, and we've got uh, European highest temperatures ever, about 49 degrees only last month, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these massive extremes are hidden with that. So yeah. we are we are facing an utter existential threat on the current trajectory trajectory within the lifetime of the children alive now. Um, we are heading for anywhere between three and five degrees of global average heating. And it's widely acknowledged by the scientists who know what they're talking about, um, but get rubbished by the media that uh, sort of three degrees, three to four degrees type of uh, temperature increase. It's, it's difficult to imagine that's compatible with modern civilization. So it couldn't be worse. And, and where I would um, compassionately disagree with what you said before, Jill, is that this is not about our children and our, our grandchildren. It is, but it's also about us. Because frankly, if you're under 60, this is really, or even under 70, this is really about it and all of us. Um, only if you're very elderly can you kind of go, oh, sod, it's not to do with me anymore. Um, uh, and I hope people watching us, if they are very elderly, don't think that because we do have a legacy that we need to be proud of, not ashamed of. But um, yeah, I mean, th things are, are happening so fast. We are, uh, and it's there's a report from someone at KPMG that um, outlined this that came out only last year. We're on a trajectory for social and economic collapse by 2040. So this is not about future generations. This is about now. Yeah. Um, and the action is about now as well. So um, and also what many people don't understand is even if we were able to press a magic button, which I would daily love to press and get to zero emissions today or tomorrow, it wouldn't stop um the inertia in the climate system because the system is so huge and so complex and co2 emissions keep 
uh, stay in the atmosphere for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So the heating uh, and momentum would continue. It's like trying to slow a supertanker. So we would experience decades of further warming and centuries, if not millennia, of sea level rise and ocean acidification before things stabilise. So, yeah, it, it couldn't be bigger and it couldn't be more important and hardly anyone really feels and understands the depth and the scale of this. And I think that word is, is true. People need to feel it. People need to feel the urgency. But sadly, it's like if we smoke, the consequences are years ahead and we can sort of feel we can ignore it. And when we were talking about 2050, it sounded a long way away. 2030 now sounds a lot closer. Um, and yes, we can definitely put the link for people to, to read those reports on this. Um, and one thing that I noticed in that shortened version was that even though, as you say, if we stopped the global warming tomorrow, the fact is that as we reduce pollution in the atmosphere, that conversely actually helps the global warming, which I hadn't appreciated. Yes, um, and that is unfortunately an example of um, the fairly straightforward science that has been known for many years. Um, and I personally only found out about in 2018 myself when I first heard the Heading for Extinction talk by the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, Gail Bradbrook. Um, I didn't realise that when the when we stopped burning so much fossil fuels and you know, stopped driving so many cars and so much air pollution in cities, that air pollution has actually been shielding uh, parts of the planet from some of the extreme heating um, from the, some of the sun's rays. So um, yeah, when the air clears, which it has to, because we have to stop, have to stop burning fossil fuels, we'll get a one-off extra hit of heat of global heating. Um, and I think they're, they're saying in um, David King's report that's believed to be about 4.4 of a degree. I think there's a range either side of that, but either way, it's not good. Um, and that alone, even if we don't put another ounce of CO2 into the atmosphere right now, that alone would take us past the 1.5 degrees. So, and we're already you know, on trajectory to go way past that without that pulse of extra heating from the particulate matter coming out of the atmosphere. It's all of this stuff, Jill, that is not told to the public. It's not told to the public. And another load of stuff which isn't really shared with the public very much because the mainstream media is utterly, utterly failing us and has been for many years. It, for example, is um, I don't know if you saw it, but the recent report from UNICEF, it didn't get anything like as much, enough coverage. I'm not even sure the BBC covered it at all. If they did, it was very minor, um, which was a report that came out um, about two weeks ago now and was reporting that... Um, over 1 billion children on earth are currently, this isn't future, this is now, 1 billion children on earth are at high risk of multiple climate impacts right now. So that's droughts, flooding, cyclones, um, uh, malnutrition, famine, uh, floods, uh, heat waves, and um, disease, disease exacerbated by, um, by uh, climate change. So those are kids in at risk of experiencing three, four or more of those right now. Um, to hundreds of millions of children at risk of, of, of each of those types of risks multiplying. And, and, he, and most of the rest of the other kids on Earth, the other one billion or so kids on Earth, are at risk of at least one of those impacts. 
Um, so it's it's almost it's as if I can't think of a better way of describing it than that adults and our elders on the earth now are and have been at war with the younger generation. It's almost like we hate children. I mean, I can't, you know, I know that sounds might sound ridiculous and, and offensive and whatever, but it is almost like we hate them because we're killing them off. Um, we're doing this to, to babies and children that are totally innocent and have barely even know the facts and 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 this is what we're doing to them mm. it, it's it's morally appalling uh, and I haven't even got onto the non-human species no and I noticed that there was another kind of cop that, for biodiversity that I haven't appreciated that they're hopefully going to try and tie the two goals together the climate change and biodiversity um, I, you you mentioned unfiltered too one of the reasons why we thought it important to talk to somebody from Extinction Rebellion was because we were interested in uh, people who were taking action here and also to give the opportunity for an unfiltered because as you say, I've been in the UK this last two weeks watching what's been going on in London. And um, when I talk to you, it's quite different from, from what I see from the reporting on the TV. So let's move then to what are the aims of the Extinction Rebellion movement? Um, we have three really clear demands. Mm -hmm. um, the first is tell the truth. So these are demands of the government, but you know, first and foremost, they're demands of the government. So here in the UK, Exile was, was, was formed in the UK by a tiny group of people and is you know, now across 70 plus countries on earth. Um, etc. Um, in the UK, we are we are called Extinction Rebellion. We're not just an activist movement. We are in non-violent rebellion against our government for their utter failure to do their duty to keep the citizens safe. You know, the purpose of having a government is to look after the citizens, and they're utterly failing that um, because they you know, haven't told the truth and haven't acted on the climate and ecological emergency. So our first demand is for the government to tell the truth mm -hmm. um, about the reality of what's happening um, and ensure that people know that. So that's through government media and all the institutions that need to be ensuring that adults and children understand. Um, our second demand is Act Now, which is about us demanding that government reach net zero emissions and um, halt the biodiversity harm by 2025, which is now three and a half years time. It was uh, sort of about seven, eight years from when we first formed, but you know, time has moved on and really nothing's happened. Um, and our third demand is for the, for the government to put in place legally binding citizens assembly on the climate and ecological emergency so that we have upgraded, transparent, deliberative, engaged democracy, which we absolutely haven't got now. So we need better and more democracy to engage ordinary people in the extraordinary level of changes that are actually needed to steer us away from the utter catastrophe that we are now on trajectory for. Yes, and one of the speakers we had at the Leadership Forum last year was Margaret Heffernan, who wrote uh, Uncharted. Um, and she talked about citizens' assemblies. And one of the main things it seems to do is take it away from this political football that, mm. that it can have, doesn't it? That's absolutely right. I think what politicians um, are, most of them are still not understanding. Obviously, they don't necessarily want to understand because they don't want to give up any power. But actually, we're doing them a massive favour because citizens' assemblies take the heat away from them. 
and difficult, tricky things can be dealt with and worked through by um, caring, rational, ordinary people. Most people are caring and rational in terms of the, the population. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I absolutely believe that um, they're a really important part of the future governance of countries and the planet as a whole. Um, I'm also personally a big supporter of the global assembly that's being developed and put in place right now, which is a prototype for an amazing piece of uh, global governance that I think is really, really crucial um, because we don't have legitimate um, governance structures at a global level or at a national level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell the truth, act now to get net zero by 2025. Mm -hmm. um, and that report was saying, uh, forget net zero, because now we've got to do more than that. We've actually got to be reducing it. It's got to be net negative. Is that what it was called? Yeah. So that's also been, um, to be honest, known for a long time. So um, again, what many people um, don't understand, and it's not their fault, it's because, again, we haven't been told the truth. Mm -hmm. The fossil fuel companies have been obfuscating and lobbying to, to lie to us for decades. Um, and of course, they fund and control so much of our government situation and the media and blah, blah, blah. Um, we've been gaslighted and greenwashed for so long. So um, it's like carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere is like a giant bathtub. It builds up and it, the, pl the plug hole is only very slightly leaky. It leaks out very slowly out of the plug hole. That's the carbon, the carbon sinks. They don't leak, leak very, very fast because it lasts in the atmosphere so long. Um, and carbon dioxide is the single biggest greenhouse gas. There are others such as methane, but carbon dioxide is the single biggest one. Um, so even when we slow the tap, we're still adding to the bathtub. And uh, prior to the Industrial Revolution, we had a level of about 280 parts per million in the atmosphere of CO2. And from all the burning of fossil fuels and the deforestation across the earth, um, we've, uh, we went up and up and up. Um, and in about the 1980s, when I was a teenager, we hit 350 parts per million. Now, scientists have deemed that that was about the safe level that we could afford to have in the atmosphere to avoid catastrophic um, global heating and climate breakdown. So we went past that when I was a teenager. So the scientifically correct way of saying it is that since 19, the mid to late 1980s, there has been no carbon budget. And by carbon budget, what I mean is, and what the scientists mean is, the amount of carbon you can afford to put in the atmosphere, i.e. the amount of fossil fuels you can afford to burn, um, to stay below a certain level of temperature. So we haven't had a carbon budget since I was a teenager and I was out clubbing and whatever, and I didn't even know what carbon budget was. I knew what greenhouse gases were back then, but I didn't know it was this bad. Um, yeah, that, so we don't phrase, have a carbon budget. And that phrase carbon sink uh, was new to me as well, I have to say. Yes, so a carbon sink, is, so a carbon sources and carbon sinks. So carbon sources that, um, are... Uh, either obviously fossil fuel emissions or um, when um, modern farming practices that damage the soil, uh, when you keep um, digging or churning over soil and damaging the soil infrastructure and soil biome and so on, it releases carbon. So badly, poorly form, farmed soils, most of on Earth they are poorly, uh, poorly for, uh, farmed because of industrial agriculture, they release carbon rather than knocking up carbon. Mm -hmm. So if you actually... Um, 
And if you obviously cut down forests, deforest, then that releases carbon from not just the trees, but also the soils, because um, the root systems die, the mycelium and the biome die in the soil, and that all release, releases a lot of carbon. Um, so um, we have natural carbon sinks in soil, in peat, in trees and other vegetation, and also really importantly in the seas. Um, the oceans are seven tenths of the Earth's surface and the deep ocean um, and the ocean creatures sequester a lot of carbon. But unfortunately, since I was, uh, well, since about, since about Second World War or thereabouts, we've killed off um, and annihilated half of all life in the oceans. Um, and it, it's currently continuing to die off at about 1% a year. Um, so we're facing a trophic collapse and a total collapse of um, ecosystems and marine life within the next 20 to 30 years. Yes. And when I think about the future and uh, where we're heading, and I imagine a planet that there's only us and the only animals that survive are the ones that we happen to eat. You know, it sounds fairly awful. Where, where will people go on holiday for for? example not that we're supposed to be going on holiday but there's not, there won't be anything yeah to look at anymore will there? the wonders of the world will have gone jill they've already gone sweetheart they've already gone darling i mean not all of them most of them have but i mean really seriously um since i since again since i was born um the proportion of wild animals, the mammalian biomass, which is the, if you imagine scooping up all the mammals on earth and putting them on the giant weighing scales, um, mammalian bi biomass, there's now only three or 4% of wild animals. Um, there's about 30 odd percent of humans, we make up that much of the main, and then the rest, the 60, 70% is the livestock, the chickens, pigs, cows, sheep, etc. That that people farm to eat and for agriculture. It, it, most of the wildlife has gone. Yes. It's gone. And um, a million species are at risk of extinction. 200 species go extinct every single day. Every single day. It, the world that you and I were born with has gone. And it's mm. never coming back. Mm. Never. We're on a one-way escalator to hell at the moment. And, we and, and that might sound, if anyone watching this and you think it sounds dramatic, please, please just read the science. That would be my first ask. Give yourself a week's sabbatical and absorb every bit of real science that you can, from the CCAG to the IPCC to lots of other references that I can happily provide. And make sure you understand, because if you're not acting from a true, true understanding, you, you can't be acting from the reality. And, I, and you know, um, people might call extinction rebellion an extremist organisation, but we are ordinary scared people who understand the science. It's that simple. Mm. Ordinary scared people who understand the science. So let's talk then about the perception of Extinction Rebellion. Uh, I know that when you and I talked before, you were saying that sometimes it's portrayed as uh, the great unwashed uh, being part of it. Sometimes it's the, the middle class people. Sometimes it's all female people. Um, but one thing I remember you saying was that this was the most diverse organisation that you've ever worked in. <laughs> yeah, I say worked in, it makes it sound like a job, doesn't it? I mean, it's... Um, <laughs> what is uh, it? You are expending your time, aren't you? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's life, um, for sure. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, I, I've worked in various NHS organisations as an employee, I've worked in um, non-NHS organisations and I've worked in... 
lots of different organizations as a coach uh, and coach supervisor public private and voluntary sector and um yeah it's definitely the most diverse in uh, in no question in terms of age background gender balance um uh faith really really um sexuality gender identity um it's not as ethnically diverse as it could be there is actually more than is portrayed in the media but that was probably the area where we, we need more diversity but there is there certainly are um uh parts of the movement that are really focused on welcoming um our brothers and sisters from um bipoc communities i mean i i I totally understand having um, now had first-hand experience of police violence and brutality last week when I was in London, that um, I totally, totally understand why um, people with black and brown skin and people from other marginalised groups are too terrified to, to get involved in activities that risk their arrest. Some of them still do, and I absolutely honour them 100% for their bravery. Um, but, you know, I'm a white middle-aged woman, so and, and, and I've experienced it now on a, on a level. So imagine what they do to other people when people aren't looking. Well, we know what they do, don't we? We know what they do. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying every police person is like that, but it's clear that um, this uh, for this rebellion, there has been it's very clear that there's a policy of brutality among, against us and it's been escalating. And I will happily share a video of you from, with you from only a couple of days ago with police um, punching, hitting, um, truncheoning, uh, choke holding um, a group of Extinction Rebellion nonviolent activists. It's terrifying. Um, I was injured by them on last Wednesday, but it's been escalating day by day and it's got worse and worse and worse and it's absolutely appalling and it's not getting much media coverage at all. No, and I saw your name in the, uh, you've been super glued deliberately to a structure and the police had pulled your hand away? Uh, no, not quite, nearly. Um, yeah, we, um, a group of women, we were taking a peaceful action in Oxford Circus um, and we formed a circle around some of the women who'd, who'd locked onto some structures in the middle of Oxford Circus for a peaceful protest, uh, which is within our human rights to peacefully protest in a democracy. Um, and we'd formed a circle around the other women inside um, and we were holding hands and we glued our hands together. And um, within a few minutes, a number of police ran out and charged our circle. And unfortunately, well, had someone had to be, but I was the, the impact point where they charged through. So they um, pushed through and ripped my hand off my neighboring woman's hand and um, pulled the top layer of skin from my palm. And it was extremely painful and extremely scary. Um, and, uh, I would imagine that many women watching this have experienced some sort of abuse at the hands of powerful men, um, economic, sexual, emotional, uh, physical, whatever. Um, I know I have, um, uh, but I haven't actually experienced direct police violence before. And um, it's really terrifying. My, I'm still processing it and I still shake when I watch the video. Again, I'm happy to share that. And thankfully, it was some of it was videoed and it was really scary. Um, but it's gone up another notch, Jill, it really has. It's, it seems to be escalating every day to a level that, that we haven't seen against XR protesters before. No. And you gave me a comparison when we spoke earlier about um, the number of 
rape cases that were prosecuted, for example, are like 3%. And what was the percentage of XR rebellion people prosecuted? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. In this government, in this country, the system only prosecutes about 3% of rape um, uh, cases. Um, well, certainly from the from our um, rebellion back in 29, rebellions back in 2019 in April, um, when there was 1180 people arrested, um, the criminal justice system in this country sought to prosecute every single one of us. Um, and since um, where that system has been able to, they have they've tried to prosecute all of us. Sometimes that's been found to be unlawful because the police have acted unlawfully, as they did in, 20, in October 2019, when they put restrictions on the whole of London, and that was challenged legally and been found to be unlawful, the level of restrictions against the peaceful protest that they put in place, it was against our right to protest, etc., etc. So basically they prosecute every single one that they can. Um, and that is a totally disproportionate action, you know, really, um, we say this and other people go, yeah, 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 probably. But actually, when you actually connect with what's happening to life on Earth, you know, we're in total collapse. Um, the police and the Met and the criminal justice system should be pursuing the real criminals in the fossil fuel organisations, the banks and the governments who've colluded with the system. Um, so that's where their attention should be going, not on us. Yes, yes, it seems a, a definite imbalance of uh, uh, policy and action there and so in summary we we've talked about the facts which actually i think few people would deny that something is happening today certainly within our audience probably um, we've talked about the aims of extinction rebellion to to get the government to tell the truth to act and to form these legally binding citizens' assemblies. Uh, we've talked about the perception and us speaking directly to you as one of the spokespeople of Extinction Rebellion. We are, it was unfiltered. Um, so in summary then, what can people watching this choose to do? Because some, uh, I, I saw the phrase public engagement. Of course, public engagement is, uh, Going to be really critical to any action um, and there were three hours in this report the aims were to reduce the uh, emissions to remove them and to repair the damage already done those those three hours so what what can we do what can leaders do um that's like a whole other video in its own right really but um i guess i would first say, again, I would want to compassionately challenge the first thing you said there, Jill, that I don't think people do know this. And when we know it in an embodied sense, you know, I, I, I shake with the fear and the grief and the rage of it. Until you feel like that, you don't know it. You don't know it. Mm. You have to look into the abyss and you have to connect with the harm and the death and the suffering that's happening right now and expose yourself to it. It's too easy to look away, but we need to make ourselves look and hold our heads on the gaze of the horror, which sounds awful. And I'm not being a doomer. I'm just being a grown up. This is about being a grown up. So I guess the, fir the first thing we all need to do is to be grown up and to challenge ourselves to really understand the truth of it and the full horror so that then we can be acting from that honest place 
And what that probably means is we'll have to work through our layers of denial because there are layers and layers and layers of denial. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we come to a place of realizing that our whole civilization is a house of cards. Um, it's a really vulnerable, fragile house of cards. Um, and that this um, individually consumer obsessed, growth obsessed society that we're in is just a bunch of lies that we've been sold for the last couple of generations in order to make a small number of people inordinately rich mm -hmm. so that they can get inordinately rich on a finite planet when that is impossible because we're a finite planet. Um, so I get, so learn about the true scale of the problems, learn, be open-minded about um, the fact, you know, that the range of alternative futures um, challenge us. And if I'm presuming this is a business audience, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So if you're currently sitting there thinking green growth is a thing, you know, please, please, please educate yourself by reading um, some of the brilliant writers out there. That's Kate Rayworth, Donut Economics, Jason Hickel, More is Less. Uh, sorry, Less is More, ooh, ooh, wrong title, wrong way around. Um, Molly Scott Cato, Bioregional Economics. And there are so many um, uh, writers with, and economic, economists and ecological economists with alternative and different views. Mariana Mazzucato is another one who's got, you know, who's somewhere on that, on that spectrum of um, the different views about um, how we can have a different economic system. You know, so I think that's a, that's really high up on the agenda for um, for leaders in in any business situation is understand that this political economy is a social construct and it does not need to be like this, and we are capable of changing it. And you need to educate yourself about the range of potential options because this society is collapsing. It will collapse by twenty forty or thereabouts. It's only a question of whether we help it to collapse in a good way and rebirth an alternative, or whether we collapse with it and we have horrors beyond our imagination because there are millions of people around earth right now, many of them, most of them in the global south, but not all of them because we have people in you know, Canada and we have Louisiana right now. Um, and we have places in, in Germany, Belgium, et cetera, who've had the flooding and um, large parts of the Mediterranean that have been on fire. In, there are parts of the global north that have collapsed effectively because what's going on. Our insurance systems will collapse because they won't be able to cope. And the insurers of last resort are government. And that means us. And if you are in any position to do so, and I would imagine a lot of the people watching this are, because if you're watching this, you're already in a massively privileged group compared to most people on earth. And I mean that with respect, I count myself in that. Um, then do your utmost to join your nearest um, peaceful civil disobedience group. And if you find that an affront, that request, then okay, just donate to us instead or help amplify their demands or be part of some other business disruptor. We need to disrupt this system in a non-violent way because it's going to be violently disrupted by, na by mother nature and by um, the negative forces of humanity, unless we peacefully and beautifully disrupt it first. So learn, educate yourself, uh, work through your layers of denial, just like um, I have and other people have. It's painful, but we have to do it. Um, talk about it all the time and um, disrupt everything you can in a peaceful and loving way. 
disrupt everything you can in a peaceful and loving way. And as you were going through, uh, one of the books that I have uh, been reading is um, Tim Jackson, Prosperity Without Growth. Uh, and he was also a government advisor, wasn't he? So um, there's lots of things that we can do. Don't be passive, I think, is the main message. Don't be passive. We can't just be onlookers because uh, whether we deny it or whether we don't think that it's going to uh, affect us unduly, it, it will. Um, I'm a little bit concerned that still when we talk about 2030, 2040, we've not been so good at collaborating with an imminent threat like COVID. So really, this is hard. And reduce as much as we can, remove repair. And one thing we've not mentioned with the public engagement, even though what the public can actually do, because it's the, the big polluters, the big business that are going to have more effect here. We should still do what we can, I think you said before. We should still do our bit so that we're part of it. Public engagement. Have I said that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I guess I'm definitely not, 100% not in the camp of, you know, just do your recycling and then feel smug and carry on your middle-class life. That couldn't be worse, frankly, because it's just displacement activity. And it's uh, we've been sold that lie for, you know, for decades by corporates and stuff that, that we just do our little bit. It's a nonsense. And we need to all really deeply understand that we need to live differently. Living how we live is totally and utterly unsustainable. You talked about going on holiday before. What, you know, <laughs> um, we need to act like the truth is real because it is. Yes. Our generation in the global north have most of us have more privilege than anyone on earth has ever had before. We need to get real. Um, and if we want a future for ourselves and our kids, we need to really look at how we live. Um, there is nothing more important. So, yes, and taking actions like you know, changing our diet and stopping flying as much as we possibly can, if not totally, changing our heating systems in our homes, our insulation, or stopping buying new shit we don't need because we don't actually need much of this after all. <laughs> if you discover that actually can live really happily without a lot of stuff, um, life is better with more people, more love and less stuff. Um, all of those things are in, they're, they're important consciousness shifts because when we engage with that, we shift our sense of who we are and what we are and why we are. And it helps to spread the message amongst, you know, we're social creatures, we follow each other, we're creatures of habit, we're, we're herding mammals. It, has to, it helps to help to spread the message amongst the herd. And do not stop at that. Do not stop at that. Get politically active. If you won't or can't join Extinction Rebellion, join your equivalent movement or your business disruptor movement, something. Do not be silent. If you are silent, you are colluding with this situation. If you've, you know, if you've got any position of privilege and you stay silent, you're colluding and you're part of the problem, not the solution. And surely you don't want that legacy for your kids or if, if we have the grandchildren survive, um, we don't want them to be thinking that of us. You know, it's like, oh, grandma, what did you do to make a difference when the world was collapsing? No. I didn't really do anything. I just flew off on holiday and made it worse. Yeah. Surely that's not what we want, not what we want. And COVID kind of did give us an opportunity to live differently. I certainly didn't buy hardly anything I've done. Um, and one thing I've not mentioned is um, Sarah Howe, I believe her name is, the commissioner for the 
Next Generation in Wales. I think it was the first uh, globally. Um, and I think if you're making laws with the consideration of how does this impact the next generation, then we would all think differently. It is that consciousness shift that you say. You talk in Extinction Rebellion about it being non-violent. And of course, then when we see in the media that there were some windows broken in one of the banks, then people think, oh, okay, what's that all about? So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, um, happily. And, and I'm really, really pleased and proud to say, in a way, that actually um, myself and other women across the movement have actually broken windows in three of the uh, world's worst banks now. Um, so I was involved with a small group of women in April, um, carefully and considerately and calmly uh, breaking uh, windows at the headquarters of Barclays Bank in Canary Wharf. And only this morning, eight wonderful, courageous women um, together, carefully and calmly, break two of the windows at JP Morgan in London, JP Morgan offices in London. Um, and I'm uh, really proud of them and feel huge gratitude to them. So JP Morgan are um, the world's biggest fossil fuel investor, something like 350 billion. I might have got that number slightly out, but it's something like 350 billion that they've invested in fossil fuels since the Paris Agreement. And another group of women did a similar action at HSBC. They're Europe's second worst and um, another UK bank. And um, we have to call these people out. You know, um, sometimes people will get trolled for, you know, damaging property and breaking glass. And But uh, we're building on a, on a really proud tradition um, in this country, um, at least, of um, doing these kind of actions. The suffragettes before us broke windows. Uh, the Chartists did similar actions. And if you think about it, you know, if people have been listening to the whole of this conversation, if you've connected with the reality, you know, what's a few thousand quid of some broken glass compared to life on earth? It doesn't even register. You know, in 2020 alone, $210 billion worth of climate-related damages were done. That's assessed by some of the world's biggest insurers. Now, that's just what they measure, Jill. That's not counting the loss, the loss of life in the, in the developing world that won't even have been counted because those people will never have been registered. That won't count the species and ecosystems that will have been wiped off the earth. That won't count the loss of topsoil, which will mean that crops will never be able to be grown again in those areas. It won't count any of those things. 210 billion in one year alone. And people make a fuss about us causing a few thousand pounds worth of uh, damage to glass. That's it. It's just a way to call out the criminality of our political economy and of the people in these banks, particularly the top people in these banks, who cause more violence with their pen every day than we ever have with all of our window breaking. Oh. And they get bonuses for it. Um, everything we do is totally unpaid. In fact, we get made criminals and we get huge personal and financial cost put on us by the system so that to try to stop these criminals getting bonuses out of causing the collapse of life on earth. You get fined. As we were talking, I was trying to think of that quote about the something about the 
the only thing for wickedness to flourish is for good people to stay silent. I, I can't think of it. Yes, yeah, words to that effect, yeah. I think that is what we're talking about. The, the good people need to not stay silent anymore. Mm. So thank you so much. Thank you for what your patience, your patience explaining all this yet again. Thank and I look forward to the reaction, the response to this interview. Uh, as part of the Leadership Forum.